Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. A man who excels as both a winemaker and a landscape photographer, Kevin Judd was born in England, but made his name at Cloudy Bay in the Marlborough region of New Zealand's South Island, where he produced a series of Sauvignon Blancs that changed the vinous history. Now running his own grey wacky winery, he's a wonderfully dry, even laconic interviewee. Listen to us chat about f-stops and hyperfocal distances, Marlborough's maritime climate, how to get the best out of Chardonnay, and why he hates being called a twitcher. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to see you again. Been a while. Uh, likewise. I mean, you, you've not been overseas for, what, nearly three years, have you? Uh, yeah, next February will be three years. And you're going away this week, aren't you? Yeah, next week well, I'm heading to um, the UK, yeah. It's Liberty's 25th birthday, so we're coming over for a bit of a tasting and a feed. And you fully vaxxed, ready to go? Yeah, I've been fully vaxxed for a while. Haven't had the haven't had the lurg as yet. <laughs> my son, my son was home home from England for the first time in about four years, and um, he was here for five weeks and contracted uh, COVID in the last week in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, no. Terrible. So we we had him at home. It's stuck in his bedroom for a week, but luckily we didn't catch it. So. Anyway, so coming back to England, uh, I mean, a lot of people assume you're a Kiwi. I mean, you sound like a Kiwi in many ways, but you actually brought up in, in England, in a place called Totten on the edge of the New Forest. When you were nine, your family emigrated to Australia. Did you have any memories of those early days in England before you left for Australia? Yeah, I've got vague memories of, of a, fair, a fair few things. I've got I've got a memory of being. We used to have a caravan down at Durdle Door in Dorset, up on the up on the top of the hill there. And um, it, every time we went there, it seemed to rain. And I can remember um, discussions, family discussions about how much sunnier it was going to be in Australia when we got there. <laughs> I think that was one of the uh, driving forces to, to immigrate. I mean, you you referred to it once as as a ten pound tourist scheme, and it was a bit more than that, presumably. I mean, did your dad have a job when he got there at the other end? Yeah, yeah. He had a yeah, he had a job to go to. Um, it, it was ten pound tourist thing. Is um, it cost ten pounds to get the whole family to Australia. But if you went back within two years, you had to pay for the whole fare. <laughs> More than ten pounds. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, your dad was a draftsman, wasn't he? Yeah, that sort of thing. Draft. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. He, he was in the packaging industry. But he was a lover of photography, amateur photographer, wasn't he? Very good one. Yeah, he used to do a few, a few weddings and, um, yeah, he had a dark room in the back of the garage. So I, 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 I was exposed to photography at an early age. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any of his images? Uh, no, nothing specific. No, not really. You should try and dig a few out. I should. When did you know you wanted to be a winemaker? I mean, you know, there wasn't much wine in your family growing up in England, presumably, but there must have been in Australia. Were you surrounded by vineyards? Well, my, it was actually my father's suggestion because I, I was sort of getting towards the end of my um, high school and sort of thinking about what next, you know, university or whatever. 
And one day he said, what about wine? Because he was in, um, as I said, the packaging industry and he, he used to, you know, be involved in the bag. The, I think he was somehow involved in the cardboard side of the bag and box, box development. So he was, he had a lot of wine industry contacts. And I remember he actually, um, I, I think I didn't get into Roseworthy in the first round, but he, he knew someone there and uh, gave him a call and managed to squeeze me in. <laughs> so that's it, it. I mean, I wasn't into wine. I didn't even drink wine at that point. And um, I was, I was, I was sort of really into sort of science subjects and I, and I liked sort of, I guess I, I didn't want to go into the sort of uh, factory environment or that sort of that sort of thing. I, I was quite keen on um, something more rural. And then when when I got that idea put in my head, I thought, yeah, that's quite a good combination of sort of sciencey stuff and a rural environment. So I, I gave it a go. And, and what was the Aussie wine industry like then? It was the beginnings of of, of the boom, really, wasn't it? Of, of those boom years in, in the late 80s and 90s. Well, my first vintage was 79. So it was in the early 80s when I was first in, 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 in Australia, I was involved in the wine industry in the very early 80s. And that was um, the days of um, sort of Eno, what was it, Enotech? Uh, Jane. Um, oh, this is Brian Crozer, Brian Crozer and Tony Jordan. Yeah. 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 In fact, they used to do the bottling. I, I worked at Chateau mm. with Jeff Merrill and um, the. Those guys used to come and do the bottling, or they did it on one occasion, and and it was sort of it was in those sort of really really high technical, um, high high level sort of uh, lots of um, inert gas and sulphur dioxide at the very first second that the grape skins split yeah. and <laughs> so protected handling really yeah very 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 anaerobic handling yeah absolutely. I mean, Australia had moved from a fortified industry it, to, to that. Yeah, well, at Chateau Ranella, where I was, they were they were sort of well-known or extremely well-known for the vintage port. So mm. they had st um, stills there. We used to make their own spirit and, <laughs> and red wine. So I was sort of more interested in the white side of mm. things and particularly the sort of Coonawarra Rieslings. In interesting, yeah. I mean, you know, and after two years, you got a job at Sealax in New Zealand, I think in 1983, wasn't it? Um, is it true you'd never tasted a Kiwi wine when you got the job? Um, near, not quite. <laughs> I'd, I'd never tasted a Kiwi wine when I applied for the jobs. Mm. I applied for two jobs. I applied for the job at um, Delegates mm. and Sealax. Because um, uh, Chateau Renella at that time had been bought by Hardy's. Had just been bought, um, and I was I was previously sort of uh, assistant winemaker to Jeff Merrill, and then my my, my new job in the Hardy's uh, environment was going to be looking after tank fermented sparkling wine, and not much fun. <laughs> and during vintage, they were going to send me down to Kepok to run a field crushing plant, and I thought we are okay. <laughs> no thanks. Uh, no thanks. So I looked around for another job, and um, I couldn't find what I wanted in Australia because I wanted to be the winemaker, of course, at the age of twenty-four. <laughs> I was fed up with being an assistant winemaker. And uh, someone said, "Oh, there's a couple of jobs going in New Zealand," and I thought, "Yeah, New Zealand, that, that should be a cool climate." And uh, it was a bit of a new frontier. So I applied for these two jobs, and the first um, 
the first exposure to Kiwis winemakers I got was um, with Jimmy Delegate. Um, he he was in Adelaide, and I went. I met him in a um, in a, a hotel somewhere in Hindley Street, and we had a had a, an, an interview. And he produced a bottle of Milotergo and uh, made me drink it. Oh, so that was the first wine you drank. Yeah, <laughs> and it didn't put you off, right? Well, no, I could see that. I, I, I sensed that there was there was more things to be got, you know, more <laughs> things to be done. In <laughs> I mean, one of the turning points in your life and your career really was was meeting David Honan of Kate Mantell, um, and then that obviously led into Cloudy Bay, which we'll talk about in a minute. But how did you meet David? I mean, did you apply for a job, or did you just bump into him, or somebody tell you about him? How did that happen? Uh, it was 1983, and I was at a wine show in uh, Auckland. Um, at, like after the wine show, there was a big tasting, and all the winemakers went there and you know drank too much wine and tasted all the wines and stuff. And I was there, um, apparently. So he he re- recites the story. I was there, sort of looking carefully at a lineup of cabernets on my own, and he came over and tapped me on the shoulder and said good day. I think someone someone apparently had pointed him in my direction. <laughs> I'm not sure who it was, but I've got a fair idea. Ah, so you know who to blame then, really. And, and then, and then, and then uh, about a week later, he um, he he came out to visit me at Sealax, and then he started asking me questions like, "Where do you live? What do you do for a hobby?" and stuff like that. So he was already aware of the potential of Kiwi Sauvignon Blanc, was he? Yeah, he he um, he talks about the Jimmy Watson thing, sort of sort of huge having a huge impact on Cape Mantel, but it was also the um, impetus or the um, responsible for the start of Cloudy Bay because because he he'd suddenly become so famous. There were, there was a wine conference in, in Perth in 80. Um, they'd won the Jimmy Watson, which is a big, big trophy in Australia, basically, for young red wines. Well, he'd won it twice. Yeah. He'd won it the sec- He'd won it twice, yeah. For, and for, after the second, there was a conference in Perth and these Kiwi winemakers... Um, John Hancock, John Baruzzi, Kerry Hitchcock, and I think Ross Spence. They've been at this conference in Perth, and they and they they wanted to go down and meet David and taste these amazing wines that you know he'd won the Jimmy Watson with. So they got in a rental car and drove to Margaret River and tasted the wines with Dave. And then on, on their departure, they went out to the rental car and grabbed a bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and gave it to him and and disappeared into the sunset. And that was the start of Cloudy Bay. Amazing. I mean, you were, you were the first winemaker there. You spent 25 years there. Looking back, what, what do you think made it such a success? Was it the branding, the marketing, style of the wines? Was it just right place at the right time? You know, was it was it you guys in a way? Was it the team? You had an amazing team too, didn't you? I think it was a lot, a lot of it was the, being in the right place at the right time yeah. um, and having – I mean, we, we used to get – we used to get regularly accused of being sort of smart marketing people, but you've met David Honan and you know me. <laughs> David's a smart guy and he's got um, a lot of intuition and, um, you know, he's he's very um, aware of sort of what, what make, you know, how one should present things, but he's not, he's not, he's not a marketing guru by any means, um, or, or am I? So, I think we, you know, we were we were focused on making really top wine. Um, we had an ethos of you know if it's not good enough, it's not going in the bottle. Um, mm. And we you know it was in the early days. We were, and we were in the right place at the right time. And we had a pretty cool label. Well, what, based on one of your photos, right? 
Well, it was actually, it was David Honan's idea, and, and he stole the idea from Shalone, Californian. Um, uh, Don't tell them that. <laughs> has like a mountain silhouette. Yeah. And he said to me one day, I said, I want a picture of those uh, mountains with the different shades of grey. And he said, can you get a photographer to go and take it? So I arranged for this photographer. But in the meantime, I, I shot some pictures, of, some images of myself. And anyway, I showed them to this photographer. He says, oh, you don't need me, just send those. And that was the start of that. <laughs> and that was the start of you taking landscape photos as well. From well, it sort of was, really, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what about the name? I mean, I, you told me once that you consider lots of other names and that the winemakers didn't like the idea of Cloudy Bay because cloudy skies, cloudy wines have bad connotations. I think somebody told me, it was either you or, or it might have been James Healy, who was there at the time as well, that Tua Marina and Farewell Spit were names that were considered Cloudy Bay. Is that right? I've, I've actually um, was looking through an old box of stuff at home the other day and I came across some... Uh, some draft um, label ideas um, that were pre Cloudy Bay, and one of them was Turmarina. Another one was Rainbow. <laughs> Rainbow. Farewell Spit, is that true, that story? James Healy told me that. Well, Keith Stewart always said that that was one of the options. I don't, I can't actually specifically remember thinking about Farewell Spit. I don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't. It may have been brought up in a, in a, you know, in a humorous conversation, but I don't think it was ever seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been using that story for years. It sounds like it's not true. Well, the the brief was it had to be a maritime, um, you know, because it was like the Cape Cape Mattel was the one of the capes near. So we'd be yeah. looking for something maritime, something coastal. <laughs> So I don't know how we got Rainbow and two and Marina because neither. No, of them I don't know. You got that. Well, Marina's on the coast, isn't it? I suppose. Now, in two thousand nine, you know, you decided to leave. Uh, I just wonder, was it and set up your own thing, which is grey wacky that you you've been doing ever since? Um, was this a spur of the moment decision? I mean, you'd registered the name Grey Wacky back in nineteen ninety three. It was the original name of a cloudy bay single vineyard wine, wasn't it? But what, what made you leave, really? Uh, a whole bunch of things. I mean, I turned 50. It was sort of a now and never thing. But I, I didn't actually think I'd ever leave Cloudy Bay, but there was sort of a, re, a bit of a restructure happened. And they, rather than having a, um, a communal uh, CEO, which was Tony Jordan, it was, initially it was David Hone and then Tony Jordan, the d decision had been made to put a, um, a, a, an estate director or, or a CEO in each, in each of the companies that, um, oh, NCR, and, and and that wasn't me. I knew that that wasn't you know. I'm not cut out to be a that sort of um, in that sort of role. It would have been more ambassadorial, would it be? Anyway, no. It was more. It was more like um, more high high level sort of uh, you know corporate type thing, mm -hmm. reporting directly to France and stuff. And it just didn't really work. It didn't appeal yeah. to me. They they knew I wasn't the right bloke. Mm. For that new role, and uh, and you know, one thing turned to another, and uh, I, I mean, I, they did offer me a pretty uh, interesting role there, but it, that didn't suit me either. So uh, that all those things were just sort of I started thinking, you know, it's, this is a good time. Twenty five vintages, fifty years old. Let's go. Global, global financial crisis <laughs> and a great glut in Marlborough, right? What could go wrong? No wine, <laughs> no winery, no vineyards, no money. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you did a have a coffee machine, right? They gave you a coffee machine when you left. Yeah, right? well, I had the coffee machine. 
I was waiting for a tag. I was waiting for a tag watch because um, Moa Hennessy, of course, owns Tag. But um, Kimberly told them I'd rather have a coffee machine, so that's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the name? I and mean, Grey Wacky is a type of rock, compressed sandstone. If I'm not wrong, how much of it is it? How much of it is there in, in, in Marlborough? Is it the dominant soil type? It's the principal bedrock of the country. Mm. It's they, uh, if you look at. Um, one of the government websites sort of uh, says that if, if there was if there was a national rock, it would be grey wacky. I mean, it's grey wacky is everywhere. Even the schist in central Otago is grey wacky that's gone through metamorphosis. It's, hmm. it's very much the rock, but it's not specific to New Zealand. You find it in 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 England, in in yeah. Scotland, Ireland. It's from it's from a. It's from a German word, Graubacher. Uh, Graubacher. Okay. What is Graubacher? Grey. I think it means grey. I think grey rock. rock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the bedrock. And then what about the soils on top of it? What are the dominant soil types in Marlborough? Because you've got alluvial stuff, quite a bit of alluvial stuff, haven't you? What else have you got? Well, the central Wairau is, is, is a great big alluvial floodplain full of sort of river, round, washed river stones, which are primarily grey wacky and that's a mixed with a sort of a just a broken down sort of version of it I guess it's sort of sort of a sandy loam sort of thing but where where we are um where I am right now which is in the central um, part of the Omaka Valley what we call the southern valley is that it's um very very fine clay windblown loose mm. uh, soils which have apparently were um came blown down the valley in the glacial days. Mm. They used to be glaciers further up the valley. Mm. I mean, Marlborough's now the biggest and the most famous wine region in New Zealand, but there were no grapes there to what, 73, I don't think, um, you know, when the Spencers arrived down there. Tell us a little bit about the climatic influences. I mean, how important is, is the ocean? I mean, you know, New Zealand is obviously surrounded by water, but is that the main influence on the styles of wine that are produced there? Yeah, I was... Um, um when when I talk about that you know that that part of um the story of what how we make what well, yeah you know, the styles that we make here it, it really is absolutely about the maritime influence hmm. I mean we're in the latitude of 41.5 degrees south if you think about the wines we make and you think about the northern hemisphere you'd assume that that must be somewhere through the sort of center or lower part of France but in fact 41.5 north doesn't go through France. It goes through the middle of Italy and Spain. So, mm. so we've got the, the elevate, you know, the angle of the sun is very high. Um, mm. We get very, very intense light. But because it's absolutely maritime, it's completely surrounded by ocean, it very rarely gets above 30 degrees. I mean, in the last few years, it's definitely been getting into the low 30s on mm. some days, but not, not regularly. And do you get this big diurnal variation or not? No, not particularly. Because it's maritime. Yeah. I mean, we do get cold, especially in the in the ripening season. We do get pretty cold nights, mm. um, but not. Well, in fact, sometimes we get frost during harvest. Actually, it, we do get a reasonable very um, diurnal variation, but the but we don't get the heat. So the the variation is between something pretty cool and something not that hot. Okay. You know <laughs> yeah, quite narrow. I mean, you said you, when you set up Grey Wacky, you had no vineyards, no money, or you had a coffee machine, and, and you had no winery, right? 
do you own vineyards now? I mean, I know you've got a very good relationship with Ivan Sutherland and and uh, and, and James Healy, who were ex Cadre guys. Do you buy grapes from them? Do you buy grapes from other growers? How does it work exactly? Well, those guys. Uh, um, in fact, when Ivan heard that I was thinking about leaving Paley Bay, um, he tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, "I've got some grapes. <laughs> if you're uh, if you're looking for some grapes, uh, and I've got a bit of space on the winery." Um, that's literally how 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 it started, and um, you know, and he knew I had this name Grey Wacky, and he said, "Why don't we do something sort of together?" So we've got a we've got a business relationship that sort of holds it together, and probably eighty percent of our fruit is grown by the by um, Ivan's fam, you know, the Sutherland family and the various businesses that they're associated with. So we don't actually Grey Wacky Wine Company doesn't own any vineyards at all. I, Kimberly and I own one hectare of very steep hillside Pinot Noir, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're still in their winery. You're still you're still in the Dog Point Winery, are you? Uh, we do some. We do um, a little bit of fermentation there, but most of our, um, our head office and most of our production now is done in a in a in a winery which used to be known as Omaka Springs, um, and that's been purchased along with its vineyards by um, the Southern Southern family as well. So. Okay we're still sort of working together yeah and how many wines do you make in total i mean i know, I know there was a there was a, a gewurz at some point wasn't there a kind of wasn't that what well, was a one-off was a dessert wine but most in most years how many wines do you make seven and the yeah. the, the dessert wine the first one was gewurz tremina the second one was a riesling and then and ever since they've been pinot gris yeah so that's the seventh wine yeah i, I just wonder how you you describe your winemaking style and whether it's changed since you left Cloudy Bay. I mean, you know, have you found as you've got older, I don't know, you're doing less in the winery or, or, or your thinking has evolved? Well, it started evolving during Cloudy Bay. I mean, the way I make wine now and the way I make made wine at the beginning of the Cloudy Bay days is there's almost no comparison. Um, I, was, I was still heavily influenced by that sort of um, high technology thing that was going on in Australia in the early days mm. at Cloudy Bay. Uh, and I've just gone more and more and more um, sort of hands off, less, much less um, protection from air. But some of it, some of the, um, my, uh, my um, steering away from what I used, how I used to make wine was, was the influence of James Healy mm. when we employed when I employed James Healy at Cloudy Bay, he started prompting us to uh, to um, look at wild yeast fermentation, which I thought was a ridiculous idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agreed to it in the end. I agreed to a small trial, and uh, we had these sort of six or seven barrels of Chardonnay in the cellar at Cloudy Bay, and it just stunk. It was disgusting. <laughs> And I was sure that my um, reservations were well founded, and that this that stuff would be going down the drain. But it didn't. It was <laughs> it, a year later. It was amazing. It was really great, and it was that was a turning so you, point. You have to have the courage, really, to to leave it and to and to to know that as long as you're chemically you're doing the right things, the wine will be fine. You got to get the right grapes. They got to be in the right condition. You got to do the right things when you're pressing it. Um, um, and it's it can it, it at the sh we, we we use a lot of wild yeast 
I mean, yeah. Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc is largely fermented with, in, with cultured yeast, but um, the wild Sauvignon, the Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir are 100% wild. Mm. Uh, Pinot Gris is 75% and the Riesling is 50%. Even the Petritus wine is 50% wild ferment. Wild, wild, wild ferment gives you um, sort of more individuality and more... Um, it just takes the wine away from being all about fruit and it makes mm. it more about wine. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is a, is a phenomenon and, and you're associated very strongly with the variety. Lots of very well-made, slightly safe New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. I mean, is wild yeast fermentation one of the things you do to get more complexity out of it? I just wonder how, how do you get other layers into it, say into the, into the regular Sauvignon Blanc, for example? How do you add complexity to that? Uh, good vineyard sites. Um reasonable maturity a lot of our vineyards that we source from have got some good vine age um, picking at the riper end of the spectrum having nice open canopies not having sort of dark green leaf leafy canopies uh, canopy management site selection all those things add up to you know, you know pick not just good grapes um, yeah. is one thing and as, but not just good grapes but very specific type of growing and um, ripening environment and some people using sugar as well, aren't they? I mean, you know, they're making slightly sweeter styles. Is that something you've always disliked? Residual sugar? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I've actually been accused of you of making sweet Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> by one particular person. Which is not true, right? What? Depends what you call sweet. If if you think um, three and a half grams per litre residual sugar is sweet or four grams on occasions, um, mm. then it's sweet, but it's not sweet. <laughs> Quite our our, 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 wild, our wild Sauvignons is regularly sits at sort of around three and a half four grams of residual okay. sugar because it just doesn't go any further than that. That's interesting. Yeah, the very first one was six grams, but it doesn't taste sweet because ten grams is sweet. Yeah, no, it's sweet. I, I I just wonder if you think New Zealand is a bit too focused on Sauvignon Blanc. Could it become a victim of its own success if people ever get bored of Sauvignon Blanc? It's already a victim of its own success. We we it's so famous that um, in some countries, in particular the US, it's very, very, very hard to sell anything else because mm. the connection between um, New Zealand and Sauvignon Blanc is so strong, um, especially when you're working with um, distribution companies that have got very big portfolios, uh, you know, they've got Chardonnays from all over the planet, is, is, the, uh, is, the, is the discussion when the salesperson goes into the restaurant in, in New York and they start talking about Chardonnay, do they talk about New Zealand Chardonnay or do they talk about Californian or do they talk about Chablis, do they talk about some, you know, it, the competition for space in the Chardonnay world is, is very, very, very high. Mm. But if, if the subject of Sauvignon Blanc comes up, New Zealand is in there and, mm. and, and if people are talking about New Zealand, they just go straight to Sauvignon Blanc. It's, it's so... The connection is so strong that it's very, very hard to. to um, you know, I mean, our business, no matter what we want, what, no matter what I would like yeah. our business to be, the world wants Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your Chardonnay is, is outstanding. Does it frustrate you in a way that people won't buy the Chardonnay in the same it's volume nuts. as the Sauvignon? Right? <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah. In the in the US. Our Chardonnay gets really awesome reviews. Uh, so <laughs> I need to get the uh, percentages right. I'll, 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 we sell something like 8,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc. 
Last year we sold 80 cases of Chardonnay. Oh dear. <laughs> Where is that? That's in the States, is it? Or is that overall? In the, in the US. In the US in alone, the US. right. Yeah. In New Zealand, yeah. um, it's, it, it's totally, we sell um, half as much Chardonnay as we do Sauvignon Blanc. It's okay. totally different. So the Kiwis drink less Sauvignon than, than people outside New Zealand, in a way. Kiwi, the Kiwis drink, um, the, big, the biggest markets for our Pinot Gris and Chardonnay is New Zealand. Okay, yeah. But it's um, we export ninety six percent of our production, so work that one out. And <laughs> <laughs> what about Pinot Noir? I mean, I like your Pinot Noir as well. Is that a great variety that's as challenging to make as people always say it is? Yeah, you've got to get everything right with Pinot Noir. You can't. I mean, with with Sauvignon Blanc, it's it's um, you can get away with a lot of things and still make wine that's obviously Sauvignon Blanc and, and pungent. And Pinot Noir, you need to have. Um, you know, we, I think we made. In the early days in Marlborough, we we were growing peanut. I mean, we had not we know we had clones in, initially that were better suited for sparkling wine, mm. um, not for red wine. And we were growing it in the Cloudy Bay days. We were growing it in um, sort of very stony riverbed soils, mm. and um, and they were young vines, and the and the wines are pretty ordinary to be honest. Mm. Um, but once we once once we discovered um, different the, the sort of clay soils of the southern valleys and once we started planting on the hills once we got the better clones when all those things came together and, and then we started getting some vine age which you know is in the last decade now we're producing some really top class pinot noir mm. but if, if you if you could put you know pinot noir down on the um, sort of lower wire hour and put it on four canes and pick it by a machine harvester it's not going to be know, good no, well, it will be okay. It will be a drink. It will be a, mm. probably a pleasant drink, if but it but it won't be top class Pinot Noir. You've got to, you know, you can't. You've got to get um, you've got to get everything right with Pinot. Mm. I want to talk to you a bit about photography now because uh, you're a fantastic photographer. Two great books which I enjoy looking at very much. How did you start? I mean, was it that Cloudy Bay label? I mean, you obviously talked a little bit about your dad and being in a dark room as a kid. When did you start to think, hey, I'm pretty good at this? <laughs> I'm still waiting for that day. Um, <laughs> oh, a couple of, well, I had a um, sort of a, a, a Nikon and I sort of fancied myself as being, a, you know, quite interested in photography. Um, I didn't think I was good at it. Uh, and then in the early days of Cloudy Bay, of course, David Honan was based in Margaret River and, you know, he, like, so I, I used to take pictures of what we were doing and landscapes and that and send it over um, for them to use. But the, 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 the key turning point was really in 1990. Um, Oz, Oz Clark, um, was it the New World Classics? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mick, Rock, Mick Rock was sent to New Zealand. To, or he, he came to New Zealand to shoot for that book. Mm. And he came to Cloudy Bay. It was in 1990 because I remember our son had just been born about a week before, um, and and, I, and Mick was like my my hero. I'd never met the guy, but I used to, you know, flick through the pages of Decanter and and all those magazines, and I could I used to um, challenge myself to pick which pictures were his, and 99% of the time I got it right because he had a style that I really admired. So I, yeah. I was you know really um, keen to meet him and. We spent a fair bit of time together and I showed him some of my pictures and he invited me to contribute to the library. And, and he that, mentored that was, you a bit or not? I beg your pardon? 
did he mentor you a little bit as well? Well, so I started sending him pictures, and of course, I only had a 35 mil camera at that time, and um, and I didn't know what the hyperfocal distance meant. <laughs> I still don't. Can you tell me what it means? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I didn't have a good enough tripod, obviously, and so quite a lot of the stuff that I started sending him came back with, you know, get, you know, with fairly um, blunt um, critis criticisms. So if you call that mentoring, then yes. <laughs> the hard way, right? I mean, t t tell us, I mean, your landscapes in particular are, are amazing. I know you're doing a lot of pictures of, of birds these days, which I want to ask you about, but landscape <laughs> is just stunning. I mean, you're lucky you live in a beautiful place, but you still got to take the pictures. I mean, what are the secrets of a great landscape you know, is it a photo? Is it, is it patience? Is it kit? Is it is it having an eye? Is it all of those things? I mean, it's presumably a lot of coffee early in the morning when you're sitting ill, <laughs> right in the cold. Sometimes it's a bit of luck, but <laughs> I, I I like to say, um, yeah, getting getting up out of bed early, um, you're gonna, you're, gonna, you're more likely to get lucky. Um, <laughs> you're more likely to get lucky from a landscape photography perspective, anyway, if you get out of bed early um, and um, and, and, and sit in the right place and wait for the right light. But I mean, it's all it's all about light. Well, it's about light and having something to photograph, of course. Mm. You can't um, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as they say. Yeah, but you've you've got to spot the light, haven't you? I mean, you've got, you've got to decide where you're going to put yourself. I mean, it's partly luck, as you say, that the light or the you know the, the landscape um, it, it it's configures luck. way. But you've got to spot it. You've got to say the moment and say, hey, I can see that light there, right? Yeah, you have to have that um, ability to, to, to see. But and sometimes, I mean, in the days when I was shooting a lot of vineyards for the library and for books and stuff, um, I'd quite often go to the same spot more than once, and you know, try and get the right light. You know, work out, find a good spot in the middle of the day, and then go back there when the light is. You know, work out where the sun was coming up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but but sometimes you just, I mean, I, I, the the one of the last trips we did before. The pandemic was um, we, Kimberly and I went to Monument Valley mm. in Utah, and it's amazing, it's so spectacular. And I got up one more. <laughs> I'd like to see those pictures. There, if you if you go way down, um, are they on Instagram? Yeah, if you go way, if you go down, if you go way down my Instagram feed, you'll find them down the bottom. <laughs> but it was incredible. But I, I got up one morning. I went down into the into the valley below the hotel there, and um, there was just this mist came in and there's just and and the day before we got there they'd had five inches of fresh snow oh. so you imagine that desert landscape with the fresh snow and then this mist and it was just like amazing <laughs> gift it was unbelievable it was like i was just about shaking it was just so exciting just so spec absolutely spectacular how, how do these two worlds your professional worlds feed into each other i mean do you think being a winemaker has made you a better photographer and vice versa, or are they just completely different disciplines? Oh, they're they're very different. I mean, I suppose you still you have to have. Um, I mean, they both combine um, a, a, an element of science and art mm. because they're both the success of both is judged by someone's senses. So, you know, one's visual and one's taste. But at the end of the day, that you have to know how to use the gear, um, mm. and you have to have a sense of what you're trying to achieve. In terms of you know flavor or, or what you want to uh, see, does one help? Does one help the other? I'm not sure. I suppose you could argue that you know 
these days, especially an image will last longer than a bottle of wine. I mean, however good a bottle that's, of wine is, it's going to be there 100 years, is it? That, that, I, 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 that's one of my lines, actually. Mm. The, one, of, one of the frustrating things about wine is that every single wine that you ever make is eventually going to taste like shit. <laughs> the next, the, you know, two generations time, they might read about these dudes, you know, that started Cloudy Bay, but they'll never be able to taste it. No. Yes, but they'll still, be able to, they'll still be able to see the pictures I took. Yeah. Which is quite cool. Listen, I want to talk about, about Kimberly, who's your long-term wife, amazing person. I think she's one of only three full-time employees at Grey Wacky these days, isn't she? You took on somebody recently. Just what oh, has her contribution been to Grey Wacky? There's a little bit more than three. There's a, there's a, we've got a table team of about seven. Kim, Kimberly and I work as a sort of a team. We've got very um, complementary uh, um, abilities. She likes talking to people. Um, which well, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> But um, you're doing a good job now. She she does all she does all sorts of stuff. You know, she organises stuff and uh, communicates with markets and puts together trips and talks to people, organises things. She's um, helps with the HR, you know, people management and uh, all that, sorts of stuff. That's such a good combination, right? I was going to say we export to like fifty countries now, so it's that's that's for, a lot. For, lot for, of a little, for a little team. Um, we're we're a busy little team, yeah. I mean, do you have time for anything else other than wine, your family, photography? Well, we live on we do live just out across the valley, about one kilometre from where I am at the moment, which is in the winery, and um, we've got like um, forty acres with a you know sheep and a few cows and stuff, and a veggie garden. So I, I spend a lot of time mucking around looking after that. So, looking after the vegetable garden. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sheep, and the sheep, and, the sheep. and <laughs> fixing fences and planting natives. We've we've planted a huge number of natives lately. Trying to, yeah. we've got a dam and we're trying to attract sort of. You know, we've got two. You know, we've got a lot of native birds. That's why you're taking pictures of them. Well, I don't very often take pictures of them at home. I, I, <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a twitcher. Okay, and I'm not a birder. <laughs> <laughs> Who would accuse you of being a twitcher? I sometimes use that hashtag, not a birder. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a landscape photographer, and occasionally birds fly in the way. Okay. Sometimes they land in the water and stuff. Do you just have to take a picture? Sometimes. <laughs> anyway, Kevin, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you uh, about your amazing career in wine and also your brilliant photographs. If people want to look at your photos, is there a website? Shall they go to your Instagram page, which is Grey Whacker, isn't it, with an ER on the end of it? Yeah, Grey Wacker with an R on the end is, um, you can see a lot of my work there. Um, you, there's, I, when During the lockdown period, I, I, I posted a lot of 20-year-old winemaker portraits, so you need to, to see my other work, you need to sort of um, keep stroll, scrolling down past the portrait. Do you get past, to Utah? Beyond Utah. Right? And, and then you'll find all sorts of stuff. And I have got a website, um, which you'll find with the help of Google, obviously. And what's it called? KevinJudd.com? KevinJudd.co.nz. But I have I, I built that myself using Squarespace about three years ago, and I haven't done anything to it since, so it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> oh, dear. Or, or you can be my Facebook friend. That sounds good. Join him on Facebook, folks. Um, good <laughs> luck with the to England. Yeah, you're, you're, you're setting off pretty soon, so see you very soon. All right, cool. Thanks, Tim. See you, man.
I love that story about Tua Marina. Imagine how different the wine world might have been. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Ted Lemon from Literai in California. Join us then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.